This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. Sona, how's your sock drawer looking? It's messy. There's a lot of single socks. Yep. I think it's time for a little spring cleaning. Oh. <laughs> Check out Bombas. Once you try a pair, you'll never look at socks the same way again. I should know. I like my Bombas. Their spring collection has new garden party socks that bring the party to your feet. My feet have never been to a party. <laughs> They've so got sad. stripes and florals and new vintagey colored rib socks. You know, when I'm wearing Bombas, I feel like my feet are being caressed okay. and cared for in a way they never have been in my life. Hmm. Get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash Conan and use code Conan for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Conan and use code Conan at checkout. <laughs> My name is Joe Biden. I'm lucky to be Conan O'Brien's friend. And uh, then again, I guess it's because I'm Irish. Yes, you've got the luck of the Irish. <laughs> Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are going to be friends. Hey there, Conan O'Brien here, and uh, we have a very special episode today of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I was given the opportunity to fly to Washington, D.C., sit in the White House, and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the 46th President of the United States, President Joe Biden. Uh, when I got the call initially, I thought I was being audited. Turns out that is not the case. This is an incredible honor for me. As you know, I'm a history buff, if you've listened to this podcast at all. This was a huge deal for me. I've never been able to uh, interview a sitting president, so it was a thrill. At the same time, I'd like to point out, I am not a journalist. I am a comedian, former late night host, but my mission today was the same mission I've had with everyone I've talked to on this podcast in the last five years, which is to connect on a human level with somebody I admire. President Biden has a very busy schedule, so I wasn't able to get to everything I wanted to speak to the president about. But that's what happens when you're sitting with someone who's running the free world while you're wasting his time. I'm very grateful for this opportunity and enough said. Let's get to it. Here I am chatting with President Joe Biden. President Biden, welcome. When I do this podcast, I'm always looking for points of commonality. Being Irish is such a part of who I am. There are phrases that have lived on in my family. 
my mother always called me a bold stump. Conan, <laughs> you're a bold stump. But I think there's so much of that that's just in who I am, and it's got to be a huge part of who you are well, being Irish. Well, it really is, but I think it's because, think about it, the Irish, even once they got here and made it, they were still viewed as lesser because they were Catholic. Yes. My mother used to say, remember, Joey, the best drop of blood in you is Irish. Uh-huh. Remember, you're a Biden. I'm thinking, who the hell's a Biden? You know, like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's not Irish. Right. Biden's not Irish. Right. It's kind of all about principle and pride. Yes. It was instilled in us by my mother that we are proper Irish. We are lace curtain Irish. Now, my mother's father had been a policeman, Worcester, Massachusetts, directed traffic, made, I think, $55 a week. But my mother was able to go to Vassar College and then Yale Law School. So it was all about moving upward in our world. And it was very important for our mother that we were proper. And then I get into this business. <laughs> where, where, <laughs> I professionally make a fool of myself. She had to figure that out. But it's a lot about pride. It's kind of expected, you think. I mean, look, for years before our ancestors came, mine came in 1848. Mm-hmm. My mom is 100% Irish. My dad is a quarter Irish. Yeah. But, you know, they got in those coffin ships in the 1850s, and they came leaving a sense of being always ridiculed and, yeah. and looked down on. And there was an enormous pride in, in, in our literature. Yeah. Well, whether you were a farmer or a poet, there was always, it's just something about, look, we know who we are. Yeah. We know who we are. My mother said, Joey, never bow, never bend, never yield, never. She sounds tough. My mother was five foot one. Five foot one. Five foot one, almost five foot two. And she was everybody's mother confessor. I show, I show a picture of my mom. You got to come over to the Oval after this is over if you have a minute. It's funny. You're offering that and your staff is all saying no, absolutely not. Well. Because <laughs> you know what? They've looked into my record. Well, they looked into mine too, so we're okay. <laughs> but there's a picture uh, of my mom by my desk. And my mom is holding Barack's hand mm-hmm. on the night we get announced out in Chicago, a million yeah. people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And my mother was everybody's mother confessor. Everybody would go to my mom for advice or they had trouble. And so my mom, she was hearing somebody's confession, figuratively speaking. She'd sit so you could see her profile when you came in the door and she'd go like this. Like, keep, keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. I called her and I said, the president asked me to can be considered being vice president. I, I don't want to do that. I said, Brock, I don't want to be vice president. Right. Finally, God, he said, well, damn, it's only you. <laughs> there are no other choices. And he, no, that's what he said to me. And, he, and so he, he said, go home and talk it over with your family. I was on a train. It was when he became the de facto nominee in August. Mm-hmm. So I go home, sit everybody down. Everybody wants me to do it. I didn't want to do it. I looked at my mom who was living with him because my dad had passed. And she said, Joey, remember I called you and I asked you about what kind of guy he was and you said he was honest and smart. He mm-hmm. said, yeah, let me get this straight, honey. The first black man has a chance to be president says he needs you and you told him no. Wow. I said, whoa. Anyway, there's a picture of my mom when she wasn't even supposed to be out with a million people out in Chicago when we got announced. And we walked down. She walks off the stage and there's a picture of her grabbing rocks and says, come on, honey, it's going to be okay. She walks out. That's fantastic. No, that was my mom. But I mean, that's the, you know, it doesn't matter what you achieve in this life. I mean, this is a big moment for me. I have 
I'm a huge history buff. I am an amateur presidential historian, and I've interviewed presidents in my day, but never a sitting U.S. president. So I want to get it on the record that this is a huge honor for me. Oh, it's, a big, it's a big deal. But I love that whoever you're talking to, and one of the reasons that I love this doing this podcast so much, so much of us are the same, 92 years old. My mother tells me to do something, I'll do it to this day. She may not like the way I do it, but no matter what I've achieved in this life, it's fascinating to me that you were waffling on the vice presidency and your mother said, you're doing it. Yeah, well, she said, this guy says he wants your help and you told him no? Yeah. But my mother and my father, my father was a really honorable guy. Uh, his phrase was, you're a man of your word without your word, you're not a man. Remember right. that, remember right. that. That was my dad. Yeah. Everything with him was about the notion of just being honorable and straight. Never lectured it, just did it. It's funny how we keep these people with us. I have on my desk, I did a performance at the Kennedy Museum, uh, Kennedy Library, I'm sorry, in Massachusetts. And my parents were in the audience and someone snapped a picture of the both of them laughing. They sent it to me and I have that on my desk because I think that's the only reason I do what I do. It really did start when I was a kid in the 60s in a high chair, making them laugh. That was my first audience, and those are the people I'm trying to impress, and I'm still trying to impress them, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting. How, how many kids in the family? There's six of us. When my dad died, everybody thought that I should be the one to do the eulogy. We all sat and wrote it, the four kids. Mm -hmm. What stunned me was my dad was a man who came up in the 30s in high school and uh, was, you know, you didn't tell your daughter how much you loved her and always hugging her. You just... You oh, know. that's it. Yeah, it's generational. generational. It didn't happen. But so what amazed me is the different relationship we had with each one of us. Mm -hmm. My sister Valerie was, he loved her and adored her, thought she was beautiful and she is, but he never say it. He didn't, he didn't say it out yeah. loud. So when I'm, we're writing the eulogy together, all of us. My brother, Jimmy, who was uh, more like my dad than any of us, he said, well, talk about the time dad took me flying as a pilot. Mm -hmm. He took you flying. Yeah. But he said, now don't tell anybody. He went down to Newcastle County Airport, rented an airplane. None, none of us ever knew it. Right. You all saw different versions of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't my dad. He didn't preach it. He just did it. It was about integrity. You had to be honest. Mm-hmm. I have a topic I wanted to bring up with you, which is near and dear to my heart because it's been the root of this podcast I've been doing for about five years. I get to talk to a lot of, quote, important people, people that have achieved amazing things. And what I try to get them to talk about, which is the things that they thought of as maybe a disability or a problem when they were younger that helped fuel them, that when they were younger, they desperately wished it would go away. They thought of it as a weakness. But when they look at the spin of their life now, they see that that actually helped forge them. And I know you've talked about this, but you, when you were growing up, stuttered, and it must have been the fuel in some ways to have pushed you forward. Well, when I was a k k k k kid. <laughs> you've got this problem licked, by the way. For me, I was really lucky. I had a mother and a father that uh, my mother would say, don't let this define you. Look at me, Joey. You're handsome, you're smart, you're a decent young man. Don't let this define you. Taught me how to fight. It used to be a, a joke when I was growing up in grade school and high school that, uh, you know, you could beat up Biden, but he'd hurt you going down. Right. The point was that it made me realize in our family, this is a God's truth, Conan, four of us, we were never allowed to make fun of anyone, no matter how mean they were to us, if they had something they couldn't overcome. Right. Swear to God. If you did, you get your rear end kick when you went home. Right. Not a joke. 
And so it taught me that there's a lot of people dealing with dilemmas that take away their pride, their dignity. I I don't know whether it's a thing that pushed me about, like, for example, even though I was a stutterer, ended up being elected the class president kind of thing. But it wasn't, I didn't run for that reason. But there's something about your dignity and your pride. It, it, it doesn't just manifest itself in terms of an impediment. For example, when we were kids, there were a couple hard times financially for my dad. I remember being invited to, I was talking to this about my sister last night, my best friend. And uh, we were going to the, a cotillion at Mount Pleasant High School, which was the, rated the best high school in Delaware, in an area that was an affluent area. Mm-hmm. And we lived in... Not bad area, but a less affluent area. And I was invited to the cotillion. Uh, I went to the Catholic school, uh, St. Lena's in that district. And it was, you know, it was just a little different. I remember being invited and I was anxious to go. And my mom, I had a uncle who lived with us at the time. He was five seven, and uh, my mom couldn't find a white shirt for me. And so we got one of his shirts and with French cuffs on it. And my mother, and it fit loosely, but it fit. My dad had always wore cufflinks to work, and my dad had the cufflinks. We couldn't find it. I didn't know what to do. So my mom goes downstairs over the washing machine in the basement in the garage level and gets two nuts and bolts and brings them up and puts them on me. And I said, no, swear to God, my Today, that's a fashion statement. And I said, Mom, I can't go. They're going to make fun of me. If anyone makes fun of you, you turn around and say, you don't have a pair? <laughs> I swear to God, true, on the health of my children. So I go to the punch bowl, uh-huh. and this guy, Frank, grabs me and says, hey, look at Biden, nuts and bolts. Everybody started to laugh, and I said, Frank, you don't have a pair of these? <laughs> I swear to God. I swear to God. He turned and said, yeah, I have them. I have them. I have them. <laughs> Not a joke. My theory is that if you stay connected to these things that embarrassed you when you were a kid, whatever it was, speech impediment or anxiety or feeling awkward or not being a good athlete, my list goes on and on and on. Having weird hair, having a weird name. I wish you um, had your hair. I'd trade right now if you want. You want this hair? It yeah. comes off. It's a, it's, it's, well, it Velcro's on the back, yeah. If, if I could do it, I would do it. <laughs> I, will, I will mail you this wig tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> do some polling first on how people are gonna think about that. Um, but I think what it does is that it gives you empathy. I think empathy comes from a sense, if you've felt that pain, if you see someone else and you sense that maybe they're feeling that pain, you're awakened to it. That's, I think, the superpower that comes from it is you have- I'm certain you're right. When I got elected, I was using Senator Kennedy's office over in the Capitol to interview staff. And uh, I got a phone call from my fire department. They put a young woman on the phone and she said, there's been an accident, you gotta come home December 18th. I wasn't sworn in yet. And uh, he said, there's been a, your wife is Christmas shop with your kids. My kids were then 13 months old, almost three and almost four. And uh, she was so nervous, she said, they're dead. And I was enraged by it. I remember going out of the Capitol, looking up in the dome. I swear to God, I'm embarrassed about it. But, uh, and the guy had cut. I just screamed and didn't know when my boys were alive. They were badly injured, skull fracture, and a bow at every bone his body broken virtually. He was in a body cast, arms, legs, anyway. What I learned, though, is that after that, when I'd show up at a friend's viewing, a family viewing, and they'd stop everything. The family would stop, even if they didn't know them, and they'd come to me, just come to me. And I realized 
What they're really saying is, he lost what we lost, and he made it. He's mm -hmm. still walking. Yeah. People have to know that you can persevere. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you made it through, they think, well, maybe, maybe I can't. Maybe I will. I've spent uh, a lot of time with families that are going through tough times. Yeah. Because you know, it gives them some solace. And I, look, I want to be clear. I was really lucky. I had enormous help. By the time I came home, my sister and her husband had given up their apartment and already moved in to help me raise the kids. My brother did. We have an expression in our family, for real. If you have to ask, it's too late. If you have to ask, it's too late. I've never had to ask. And think of the people gone through the stuff that we're talking about. They're heroes. They get up every day, put one foot in front of the other, and do it by themselves. So I had an enormous advantage dealing with my things I went through. I try to impart that to my kids, that whatever you're going through, even if you're miserable right now, it's going to yield something later on. Of course, what you're describing is the worst thing anybody can describe. And what they're going through usually is something extremely minor. The scale of it, it's the same principle, which it, is... Absolutely. You, the scale varies, but uh, yeah. the help needed. You clearly have a strong moral compass. You do things uh, that you think are right. You take positions sometimes that you, you think are right that maybe aren't always immediately popular or popular with everyone, but that's part of the job. Well, it is part of the job, I think, but it's also part of, you know, how we were raised. Uh, I was the kid, Barack. We'd sit down every morning at nine o'clock together for the first 10 minutes to half hour. I used to say to him, all politics is personal. Yeah. That's what I say to him yeah. all the time. We used to know one another better. Things have changed so much right. in public life that uh, it's like an old bad joke. Some of my best friends are Republicans, but mm -hmm. they were senators or my friends. I mean, close friends. When I ran the first time, I'm 29 years old. I'm running against a man who fought in World War II, who was a judge, who was, became a lieutenant governor, then senator for three terms. A really fine man named Caleb Box. He helped write the Clean Water Act. Yeah. And, the, mm -hmm. and uh, the last debate we were having, he stood up. And they asked, he was asked a question, and he didn't know the answer. And he said, well, I'd have to get back to you. I knew the answer, but I, my dad would have been angry with me if I gave the answer because it would have embarrassed him. You would have shamed him. Yes. you can't and do. you can't do that. No. Anyway. This might be an Irish trait, or it just might be a trait that we both share, but it is uh, hanging on to old cars. My father would drive a car until it had 300,000 miles on it, and the paint would fall off. And then he once hired a house painter to repaint the car because it was cheaper. And this car looked like it had cystic acne. And it was a bad, you know, terrible. And he just kept it going. But it was a point of pride. You keep a car going. My first car was a 1992 Ford Taurus. I still have it. It's not worth anything. But I still hang on to it because in my lineage, you hang on to a car forever. You have a 67 Corvette. Corvette. Goodwood Green, 327, 350, can flat shift, it can move. Now, do they let you drive it? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously. I, I think I, I saw a tear in your eye right uh, there. By the way, they take me out to the Secret Service test track, which uh -huh. is an old runway. Yeah. I've got my Corvette up to 132 miles an hour. It's only 327. The reason I had the Corvette, 1967, when I was marrying my deceased wife, who came from her dad was a Navy guy, owned some restaurant, wonderful, wonderful man. But they're of greater means than we were. And uh, my dad, he wanted to give us a wedding gift, and he couldn't afford anything of consequence. He said, Joey, give me your car. I had, then I had a 60. 
to Chevy Bel Air, mm-hmm. and she had a Pontiac Tempest, a 64, I guess it was. I'm not sure. Yeah. And he said, I'll fix them all up, and that'll be my gift to you guys. You can come pick them up. And she was down in Delaware 10 days before the wedding, before she went home. So we went to pick up the car at the dealership. He, he was a manager of the dealership. Anyway, we pull up, and uh, all everybody... From the mechanics to the salespersons, everybody's outside and, and waiting for us. And so we get out of the car and walk up, and Dad said, I'm going to give you your wedding gift early, guys. And he, everybody separates a brand-new 67 Goodwood Green Chevy Corvette hardtop. And he was so proud because he could afford the payments. Right. And uh, so I'm talking with Jay Leno going out the second time to race these cars. And he said, uh, you want to sell your car? And I said, he's probably listening. So I got to get, I hope I get it no, right. He's not Jay. listening to this. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, he may learn something. Oh, yeah, he should. He should learn. But, but at any rate, I, yeah. I, I, I said, you know, you have, I noticed you have in a glove box, you have the original sticker. Yeah. I said, yeah, I didn't realize I have all that. And he said, uh, you want to sell it? And I said, I don't think so. My son would come down from heaven because they rebuilt the engine, all original parts. And he said, uh, you get $144,000 for it. And I said, no, can't do it. <laughs> I'm yeah. A, for 36 years, I was also the poorest guy in Congress, but I couldn't separate for that car. By the way, the new Corvette coming out, this one, electric, 0 to 60, 2.9 seconds. Are you going to drive that one? I'm going to give it a shot. I drove the other one. I can distract the Secret Service. Well, you can make a by run the way, for the car. By the way, I drove one of those big Ford Broncos. Yeah. Electric. Yeah. 4.9 seconds. Oh, it's unbelievable. Mine is 5.2. Right. And that's flat shifting. <laughs> but all kidding aside, it, I mean, this. I just love, love car. I don't know a damn thing about the engines. I don't know anything about it. I just know how to drive them, and I love it. I just know there's a big wheel in the front, and I put on the gas, and I move forward. That's all I know. Well, I know by the way, else. you know the new ones? They have a launch switch. Like, I, I, I got the uh, a portion yeah. up to 171 miles an hour. And what you do is you put your foot on the gas and the brake. And on the button on the, on where the, the gear shift is, you hit launch. And you watch the launch symbol inside the speedometer. And it counts down. And when it gets down to zero, you just take your foot off the brake. And you move. It is like, boom. It is incredible. Hearing you talk about cars, it's the most excited. (laughs) Well, yeah. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT. Now ADT professionally installs Google Nest products so your home is safe and smart. You can check in on your home and manage your security systems from virtually anywhere. Google Nest cams can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest doorbell, even a package. You can know that there's a package out there. I know. And not a person. You don't have to that do helps. anything. Yeah, sometimes a person rings the doorbell and I think it's a package. Anyway, <laughs> and with Nest Aware as part of your monthly ADT service, you can get 30 days of event video history, even smarter notifications, like when a familiar or unfamiliar face is seen. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just a tap. Mm-hmm. I'm always setting off alarms accidentally. This is helpful for me. Oh, good. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, well, you got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are trademarks of Google LLC. On the 
way in today, Sona, I was thinking about just how much has changed over the years. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we were all dancing the Jitterbug and the Watusi. Okay. And then you grow up now and there's mosh pits and everything's gone <laughs> cuckoo. There's this new thing called rap. I don't know what's <laughs> happening anymore. But guess what? In a world full of change, there's one thing that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. The great taste of Miller Lite. Are you with me on oh, this? Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And you know, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. Yeah. I hate a filling beer. Yeah. When I have a filling beer, I just want to sit down in a beanbag chair for six days, but not oh. with Miller Lite. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Mm -hmm. Back in 1975, the big debate in America was what's more important, that it it's less filling Miller Lite or it tastes great. Yeah. The cool thing is when we all realized it's both. Okay. It's less filling and it tastes great. Yeah, all right. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and it's less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Conan. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Yeah. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. brought up something that I've been thinking about. You have more experience than most people in public life. You came to Washington 1973 and you've worked pretty much or you've known every president since Richard Nixon and you've known every world leader since Golda Meir. You've met so many of these different people. Who pops for you after all this time? Are there people that come to mind where you think, now that person really stands out as an incredible leader? Well, there are a number of people who fit that role. I remember spent a lot of time in her first term with Golda Meir mm -hmm. in, in Israel. I had great working relationships with, uh, I didn't agree, but with the Bush family. They were both yeah. decent, honorable men. Uh, I think one of the smartest guys ever worked with and knowledgeable, but also facile, was Bill Clinton. Yeah. Uh, look at Barack Obama. He has a backbone like a ramrod. Yeah. And the guy that I recently saw was a guy who was just really totally decent, and it was as good a former president as a president, and that was Jimmy Carter. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, I went down to his wife's funeral and saw him. He was in tough shape, and as I went over to give him a kiss, and all he said was, I love you. Yeah. And, you know, Republicans, I became close friends. It was like Chuck Hagel, man. I mean, there's a guy, talk about courage, uh, decent, honorable guy, uh, you were good friends with John McCain. Real close. I never voted for John McCain, but I respected him and I admired him. And I didn't vote for Mitt Romney. I admire him too. He's, a, he's an honorable him. man. I respect him and I think he's an honorable man. And I think those are both men that have a strong moral compass. And so it begs the question, we're living in this time now where having those kind of relationships, you think about Ronald Reagan, working with Tip O'Neill. You were there for that. You yeah. saw that. That used to be how it worked. And I don't know, how, do you think we can get back to that? Well, you know, it's interesting. And in I guess it was my sixth year as vice president, toward the end of the vice presidency. And you recall, my responsibility was to deal with the House and Senate mm -hmm. Congress. And I realized there were new senators that I didn't know that well, like I knew most of them. 
So I went over to the private Senate dining room to meet the new ones. It's gone. And right after I got elected, I didn't want to be here because my wife and daughter were killed. And mm -hmm. Anyway, but a group of five senators came to me and saved my sanity, starting with Mike Mansfield, Teddy Kennedy, a guy from South Carolina, Fritz Hollings, anyway, Eagleton, others. Right. To convince me, just stay six months so we can help us organize. Well, we already had 58 Democratic senators. <laughs> they didn't need, and I elected a Democratic governor, so it would have been a Democrat. But I stayed, and I used to spend a lot of time trying to avoid being with people. And finally, one day, Teddy came in and said, you're going to lunch with me. And just come and sit and listen. And I'd go over and sit down, and you get to know people. And then you travel when we travel together. And it's kind of hard to really feel the vitriol for a man if you learn his wife has breast cancer or right. if he has a child with an alcohol problem or if he, he has, a, I mean, it, it humanizes people. And you get to know people. It's what Michelle Obama, I think, says you, you can't, it's hard to hate up close. Well, that's a great line. And I, I think I can tell, and this relates a little bit to earlier when we were talking about this Irish quality, but I know that I like to be in a room with people. When COVID was happening and I was talking to people on Zoom, I felt like I wasn't quite coming across the way that I wanted to. I like to be in a room with people and let them take the measure of me and I take the measure of them. And I get the feeling that what really helped us in a bipartisan era, the Washington you came to, was that people were in physical proximity. They were. The dining room that you were in. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And so it's a lot easier to hate when you don't know. And so, as I said, I went over and found out there was nothing there, nobody to talk to. Right. By the way, John McCain became one of we like brothers. Yeah. He asked me to do his eulogy. He when asked he was you, dying. yeah, to speak at his, uh, to, to do the eulogy at his and, funeral. But interesting thing, he had been released as a prisoner of war, mm -hmm. came back to the Senate and to, to be part of a, the military cadre that sits down in the Senate to travel with senators when they go abroad. And John ended up traveling with me over, well over. 300,000 miles, and we became friends. As a matter of fact, I introduced him to his wife. We were going to Japan, and we stopped in Hawaii, and the Admiral's daughter was this beautiful woman who is now works with me, and uh, he talked about it. I said, go up and meet her, and he wouldn't do it, so I went up and I introduced them. <laughs> they ended up getting married. We were friends. Have you done a lot of matchmaking in your life? Is no, it? no, but but John John would have done it for me. Yeah, in other words, for he, you. He, he wanted to, but he didn't want to be. He was still in the military. We were in a military base. Sure. And I'm the one that talked. One of the ones that talked him into running for office. I knew he wasn't going to run as a Democrat, and uh, he ended up running. And we would argue like hell. We, I mean, hammer and tong like two brothers. But then. That was it. That's a good way to put it because I have that relationship with, uh, well, one of my brothers in particular, my brother Neil, we're very close. We love each other. We argue. We just really go at it. And then we put that aside and we have these great conversations and laugh. And I say, okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And he says, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. Love you. You know, th that's the conversation, but there's a safety. There feels like there's a safety in these relationships. Maybe that's what we're getting away from a little bit is, I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's the politics has changed. So I think it's changed, but I think it's beyond social media. I think it's the media generally. Yeah. And I'm not blaming the media, but things right. have changed. I mean, yeah. who, who are the editors anymore? Mm -hmm. You don't have someone saying, no, you can't print that in this paper because that's not accurate. There's no editors anymore. And, right. and But we have to get back to knowing one another. 
just knowing each other. When you know someone and you know their personal problems, not that they have to open up to you and everything, but you just become acquainted with them. Yes. A lot of it has to do with a sense of um, decency. Mm -hmm. You have to get to know the other person. Is it frustrating for you? Because I do see the way you, and again, I think this is something I like to do too. I like to shake a person's hand. Yeah. I like to be in the space with them. Now you're the most powerful person in the world. You're in the White House and it's harder to just get your hands, shake hands with someone, look them in the eye. The secret service is here. Yeah. I drive them crazy because I want to have tactile contact. I want yes. to look somebody. You can tell, look in their eyes, what they're thinking about you, what yeah. you're thinking about them. Right. For example, I met yesterday with the families, all have hostages still held by Hamas. Yeah. You know, it's personal. It's, I, I don't know. It's, and by the way, the Secret Service, God love them, they put up with me. In terms of, I make their job harder, I know, I try not to, but my instinct is I see a crowd in the side road to get out and say hi, talk to them. I understand that. I had the, I have the same issue and uh, I have no secret service. Uh, I want secret service, I probably need it. Uh, a lot of people have different opinions about me, but I desperately love to dive into a crowd and start talking to them. And often I've had the experience where someone will stop me on the street and ask for a selfie and I'll be chatting with them. And then 15 minutes later, they say, Conan, I have to go. <laughs> I need to go now. Okay. And I'll say, you sure? Because I'll do another 10 minutes. I've, I've had that experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they say, Mr. President, we just wanted a selfie, but we really don't want to hear <laughs> well, that story. <laughs> I've become an expert at taking it. It's easier for me to take the selfies. Yes. But look, um, I think it's important people know and are able to get a sense of who their leaders are, yeah. not just what they say, but I mean, who, who they are. It's one of the things about the presidency that's, uh, I mean, it's amazing to me, understandably, how people, if they know your background and know you, what you've done, there's more of a connection. Like, for example, people were surprised that I wanted to go into Kiev in the middle when the, the attack was taking place. I was going to ask you about that because I believe I was trying to find a precedent, but you've gone to two active war zones and um, that is highly unusual. And I don't know how, first of all, when you, was the first lady okay with that? When you said, I'm going to yeah, go into- she was. She is a tough lady and she knew. I wanted to demonstrate that, first of all, I wanted to see for myself what was happening. Mm -hmm. now, the Secret Service, God love them, the last thing they want to do is put a president on a train. 10-hour train ride. Yeah. And uh, when we got off the train and I met with Zelensky, we, were, we really do have a moral obligation to help these people. And then the ride back was similar, but I, I didn't view it. I got coverage of this. this. Only thing it did was say, well, he was not 300 years old. Well, how could he do 20 hours back and forth? Right. But for me to see, I was showing the staff today, uh, we're, we're talking, coming, getting ready to come over here. I have a photograph of when uh, Chuck Hagel and uh, John Kerry were with me, and it was in the first month in, of after we became president. The President Obama said, Joe, I want you to go and make your own assessment of what's going on in Afghanistan. So we, uh, we traveled the entire country in a helicopter, and we're going back, and John Kerry wanted to see where Osama bin Laden had escaped through the Konar Valley of the mountains. Mm -hmm. And a helicopter was forced down in a snowstorm. And barely, they found this place to land, which was 
incredible. And there's a picture of us all standing behind the helicopter to stay warm. I think it was something like 18 below zero. It was only 17 clicks from Bagram Air Force Base. And I'm looking at that and thinking to myself, the guys I was with, the CENTCOM commander, the pilots, the... John Kerry, Chuck Hagel, because, well, we wanted to see for ourselves what was real. If you're in a briefing room and someone's giving you papers or they're showing you photographs, it's really not the same. You've got to go there. You've got no, to it's not the same. And it depends on who's talking to you. And by the way, it's, not, it's really tough, I think, to, for a briefer to come in and sit down with the President of the United States and tell them this, that, or the other thing. And the people... That I've, uh, matter of fact, I'm going to be seeing Chuck Hagel after this program. He's going to come over to the office. We're still friends. He's a Republican. Come on, if most people are being honest, no one really knows what you do for work, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, especially if you're in a, what I like to call B2B. Oh, you know? what, what is that? I'll explain. Okay. That's a business doing business with other businesses. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I call it B2B. It's a little thing. It's also, uh, it's a boy band I'm working on. <laughs> anyway, fortunately, LinkedIn has a network of professionals who get what you do, and you can reach the right people who matter most to your company because they're LinkedIn. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. LinkedIn has over, this is the fun part to say, one billion members. Are you serious? Yeah. That's not that's more people than are on Earth because there are people on the moon using it and Saturn. <laughs> that's one over one billion members on its platform, including 70 million decision makers. God, I'd like to meet a decision maker. Since LinkedIn <laughs> members are regularly updating their work history, you can precisely build a target audience by job title, industry, company, and more. Man, you can reach the right people for your, I'm gonna say it again, B2B business with LinkedIn ads. Yeah. Gets even better because LinkedIn will give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Hmm. There you go. Just go to linkedin.com slash Team Coco to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Team Coco. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about, get off our chest. I have that all the time. Don't you, Sona? I do. Yeah. And we need people to talk to. And we carry around different stressors. We carry big stressors. We carry small stressors. Uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up. And I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, well, I don't know, I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I? it's not a good match? I, then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Conan today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Conan. I 
wanted to read you a quote. It's a quote that I, I love. It's by Vladimir Lenin. I don't think he gets quoted a lot here at the White House, but I'm going to go for it. There are decades where nothing happens and weeks where everything happens. You are living through an extraordinary time uh, as president. It feels like the world is turning on its axis every 36 hours. Are there times when you wake up on the, in the morning and think, I wish it was a little bit duller right now. <laughs> I wish things would just settle down. Well, yes and no. Look, yes, when I had that cranial aneurysm, the doc was trying to explain to me whether it was congenital or environmental. And I said, doc, I don't care. Just fix it. Yeah. And this is back me, in, is this 88? This is 88. And uh, he looked at me and said, you know what your problem is, Senator? And I said, no, doc. Well, he said, you're a congenital optimist. Well, <laughs> seriously, that was a quote. Uh -huh. Here's the deal, though. One of the things that I've never been more optimistic about America's chances in my whole life. I wasn't going to run again because I just lost my son. He should be sitting being interviewed, not me. Mm -hmm. He was the Attorney General, Bronze Star winner, major in the USR. Anyway, one of the things that comes through to me is that for all the difficulty, when I wasn't going to run because I was going to write a book on inflection point in American history, I think we're at one of those points that every seven or eight generations occurs. Yeah. Not because of any one leader, but the world is changing. Everything's in motion. And what we do in the last couple of years, the next three or four years, is going to determine the course of the country and the world for the next five or six decades. I believe that with every fiber of my being. If we prevent Ukraine from collapsing, I've worked like hell, not just me, to hold NATO together tightly. It's never been this tight. Expand it. We have an opportunity to change the dynamic in Europe for generations. Yeah. My mother, God love her, I remember going to identify my family. They actually said, Joey, out of everything terrible, something good will happen if you look hard enough for it. I thought it was the cruelest thing she ever said to me. Yeah. But look what's going on in the Middle East now. Yeah. You know, I was able to get a resolution passed through the G20, leaders of the 20 largest nations, to build a railroad from Riyadh all the way through into Saudi Arabia, Jordan, up through Israel, all the way into Europe, because there's much more reason for them to be together than to be apart. I'm not a journalist, so I'm allowed to give my opinion. And uh, I, as a, again, amateur historian, I think it's absolutely crucial that Ukraine prevail. And uh, it's, it's something that I'm very passionate about. I get confused, you know, as you know, the Washington you came to in the 1973 uh, Republicans were always tough on foreign policy, tough on Russia. And now MAG Republicans, they've kind of flipped the script and uh, they're saying, well, we can let Ukraine go. It's not really uh, in our interest. And I don't understand it. It's confusing also to me. Say, the other guy says, we can work with Putin. He's smart. Yeah. The other guy. I like that he's the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's like Voldemort now. His name <laughs> shall not be mentioned. Well, <laughs> good point. Yeah. I plead guilty. Yeah. But look, I mean, just if no nothing but global warming is changing the world. Yeah. Ice caps are melting. That's true. But guess what brings that along with? Now you got China and, and Russia and the North Pole trying to circumvent the globe, change the dynamic in the region. I mean, the things that are happening, for example, the idea that we're having to rebuild infrastructure, but some countries don't have the capacity to do it. Mm -hmm. I've been met now twice. I've had the leaders of the Pacific nations come and be with me here because they're worried about going underwater and not yeah. making it. Yeah. Just go down the list. But I think maybe because I'm that congenital optimist, when I told my staff a couple of years ago, I was going to bring South Korea and Japan together, they looked at me like, 
Now, look, I know a fair amount about foreign policy. I have more experience than any president's ever had. Doesn't mean I'm good or bad. Just I, I know these heads of state. It's a small world. It's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. And, for example, China. China's a competitor, but I have a relationship with Xi Jinping. I've spent more time with him than any world leader ever has. Just because when I was vice president, Barack wanted me to get to know him because it pre- wasn't appropriate for a president to spend time with him because but we knew he was going to be the president. He's a very tough, smart guy, but he's got enormous problems. And so, for example, when I put together the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, the United States, he said, you're trying to surround me. I'm not trying to surround you. I said, we're just not going to let you change the dynamic of world rules. So whether it's international airspace or whether it's sea space. I said, well, I didn't write them. I said, well, that's what they are. We're not going to change them. So many parts are moving that there's an opportunity to realign the world in a way that is less likely to result in war, less likely to result in human suffering. Now, I know people look at me and say, well, you're just too optimistic. There's ways to step up and lead. And look, one of the things is, again, I want to make it clear, it's not because Joe Biden's president. It's the moment. Madeleine Albright said, America is the essential nation. Conan, that's not a joke. Who leads the world if the United States doesn't? Who? Who? No one else can. And we have an obligation and an enormous opportunity to leave our kids and our grandkids a better world. Well, I like that you describe yourself as an optimist, congenital optimist. I always tell people I'm a 52% optimist. There's a good, healthy dose of me that is very worried and very concerned, but I always lean towards optimism. It's the more challenging standpoint to take. Well, don't get me wrong. I, I have written about, and I think I know pretty intimately, downside. Yeah. But look, we got to remember, we're the United States of America, for God's sake. Nothing, nothing, nothing is beyond our capacity when we work together. I mean, it really isn't. Think if we're the only nation that has come out of every crisis stronger than we went in. Mm-hmm. I did want to end on, I've been doing this for a long time. And so it was a big honor when I got the call that the, the president of the United States uh, was going to speak to me uh, in it's the White House. Honor. Come on. And uh, it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an honor. And uh, I'm rooting for you. And as the Irish say, God bless you, you know. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, come on. Do you guys have a chance to come over and see the Oval? I'd love to see the Oval. Come on, let's go do it. All right, let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend with Conan O'Brien, Sonam Obsessian, and Matt Gorley. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Nick Liao, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Take it away, Jimmy. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. Engineering and mixing by Eduardo Perez and Brendan Burns. Additional production support by Mars Melnick. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review read on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 669-587-2847 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. 
Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.